Like a land tax, or come to that, a flat tax, universal basic income is one of those policy ideas that's been around not just for years, but for decades, centuries even. On the one hand, that suggests it's something enduring, going for it. On the other, it implies there are pretty high political and practical obstacles to its adoption. So is the arc of history trending towards universal basic income, or has recent enthusiasm for the policy just been another example of its cyclical but ultimately unrealistic nature? Who better to ask than one of the world's most prominent and influential advocates of UBI? You're listening to the podcast that puts leading thinkers on the spot by asking for one big idea to help shape our new era. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm joined on Bridges to the Future by Guy Standing, who's a professional research associate at SOAS, University of London. He's the author of several books, including The Precariat, The New Dangerous Class, and The Corruption of Capitalism, Why Rentiers Thrive and Work Does Not Pay, a book I'm hoping we can discuss towards the end. But his most recent new book is Battling Eight Giants, Basic Income Now. So Guy, how are you? Very well. I'm fully engaged in incredible range of debates around those subjects, which have been given a a huge boost by the pandemic and by Brexit and various related issues. And we're certainly in a crisis moment. So we'll have to remember, you and I, Guy, that our audience may not be experts in UBI and they may not be supporters of UBI. We need to do that because, full disclosure, I'm a big fan of universal basic income and the RSA has been arguing for it and doing lots of important research around it for many years. But let's not assume this shared level of knowledge that we have. So let's just start with your definition of universal basic income. As you mentioned at the beginning, it has a very, very long history. It goes back, in my view, in my books, to 1217 and the Charter of the Forest, which was sealed alongside the Magna Carta. And the essence of that was that every free man in the country had a right to subsistence, a right to subsistence, a right to work, a right to a home in the commons. And all my work has been related to that that theme ever since. The definition of a basic income, broadly speaking, is that everybody in society should have a modest basic income paid regularly, paid individually, paid without behavioral conditions, regardless of work status or income background or marital status. And it would be a non-withdrawable right. In other words, it's your citizenship right, if you like. And the real reasons for wanting it and why it has been in the great debates throughout our history is that it is a matter of common justice. If you think about it, the wealth of all of us is far more to do with the contributions of many, many generations before us, much more than anything we do ourselves. Even someone like Warren Buffett openly admits that. He says 90% of his wealth is due to society. And if we allow for private inheritance of private riches, which we do, which is a lot of money for nothing, if for a minority, 
why not also think of a basic income as a as a common dividend, a dividend paid equally to everybody in return for that collective wealth? It's also a matter of intergenerational justice. I remember before the pandemic that I was asked to go and speak in Middlesbrough on uh, one of my books, Basic Income, and I was taken around Middlesbrough and I was reminded of the fact that in the middle of the 19th century, iron ore was discovered in that area and it became the fulcrum of the Industrial Revolution and the wealth of, of Britain today. Well, of course, the descendants of the minor owners are living down in the south of Britain with wealth going to Eton and Oxbridge, etc. Whereas the descendants of the workers who produced that wealth for, for Britain are wallowing in the precariat today, subject to very high rates of COVID and subject to unemployment, etc., etc. And fundamentally, a basic income would be a compensation for that intergenerational inequity. But it's also a part of religious justice. I was very pleased that the Pope came out last year in favour of basic income because he recognised that the world, the commons, are a shared inheritance. It's also a matter of ecological justice because we need carbon taxes. We need eco-taxes. The trouble with eco-taxes is by themselves, they would be regressive. The only way we're going to have popular support for wealth tax, eco-tax, land value taxes, and so on, is if the revenue from them is recycled on an equitable basis, equal amounts to everybody. And then it will become very popular. The basic income is also a matter of basic security. Even if it's a modest amount, even if the amount paid would be much less than you and I might want to be the target, it still enhances basic security. We found that in pilots around the world, in poor countries, rich countries, and so on. And basic security is a human need. It is also a public good in the sense that you having it doesn't deprive me of having it. That's the private good nature. But it's a superior public good because the more people have basic security, the greater the resilience and the value of that security. If there's one lesson we should have learned during the course of this pandemic is that if some groups are lacking in resilience, all of us are lacking in resilience. And that is why we need to give basic security. Basic security is also psychologically vital because we know the psychologists have taught us that people who have lives of insecurity suffer a diminution of the mental bandwidth, a diminution of the capacity to make rational decisions. Well, it's unfair of the state to expect people to be acting responsibly if their mental bandwidth has been shrunk by their own lives. And the third, the third reason for wanting a basic income, the third ethical reason, is that it would enhance freedom. It would enhance libertarian freedom, the freedom to choose, freedom to say no to oppressive relationships. That's why we found in our 
pilots that often women, once they have a basic income, they leave abusive relationships because they have little financial security in prospect. And freedom also in the strengthening of what I call, and not only I, call Republican freedom. The freedom from domination by people in positions of unaccountable power. A woman doesn't have freedom if she has to ask her husband if she can do X or Y, or ask a bureaucrat. Even if she knows that 99% of the time that benevolent husband would say yes. Freedom only comes when you can make the decision yourself. That's why liberals should all support basic income, because, you know, as T.H. Green taught us in the 19th century, the freedom to be moral is the freedom that you can make the decisions and be responsible, but you can't be if you're chronically insecure unless you have that security. So for me, the moral justification of basic income has always been there. It's always been recognized. We've been held up by social democrats wanting laborism and by conservatives in the big C and, and small C, the main, wanting to keep power over people. So, Guy, that's a very eloquent case for you, Bjorn. In a moment, I want to get into some of the more specific arguments and objections. But let's go to this point about practicability, because I think that very often in accounts of UBI, the fact that there have been pilots, that there have been experiments, is put at the kind of end of the story. And actually, I think it's it's important for people to realize from the outset that whilst this idea might sound in many ways quite radical, the universalism of it, the non-judgmental way of it for people in a country like Britain where we've got so used to a welfare system that is based upon conditionality, for example. It's important to remind people this is not an outlandish idea. It has been done. It's been done successfully. So can you just give us a couple of examples? I know they're not perfect in terms of their full implementation, but a couple of examples of things quite like UBI and what that has taught us. Yeah, we've done a number of pilots, and the biggest one that I've directed was in India, where we provided 6,000 people with a basic income and did a sort of quasi-randomized control trial of having a control group of another 6,000 people. And we made sure that we gave everybody in nine communities a basic income individually, and in 12 other communities, uh, nobody received the basic income. And the, the findings there were very, very strong, even though the amount was very small. Nutrition improved, health improved, work increased, particularly uh, economic work with by women. The fundamental conditions of sanitation improved. The degree of social collaboration improved. And the status of women vastly improved. Now, there have been approximately 40 creditable pilots. I've been involved in six, I think. And the interesting thing, even though the methodology has differed, even though the size has differed, even though the durations have differed, and the type of country from Canada to Finland to Britain to India to Africa, the, all of these differences, despite those differences, the findings have been remarkably similar. The reduction of stress, the improvement of sense of welfare, 
the increase in work is so fundamentally important to stress this. The prejudiced view is that if you had a basic income, it would induce laziness. If you ask anybody if they were given such a basic income, most of them say, well, it wouldn't reduce my work, but it might with others. But in actual fact, the experience of pilots shows that people increase the work. And part of the reason is they get away from the poverty trap situation, as we have in Britain with universal credit. But part of it is also that it gives people more confidence, more energy, more contacts, the ability to, to buy small-scale equipment or better clothes suited for, the, for doing such activities. So for me, the prejudices have been confronted by the pilots. And I agree with you that they that they are important. There's something like 80 ongoing pilots in the world at the moment, and it is an extraordinary development. Yeah, and I just want to emphasize one of the points that you made there, Guy, which is that UBI is sometimes portrayed as a, an anti-work initiative. It's a kind of right to be lazy. And there are some advocates of UBI who are unhelpful in using statements like that. But actually, as you say, particularly in systems, heavily means-tested systems like Britain, what UBI does is it strengthens incentives to work amongst poorer people because you don't lose them, unlike welfare benefits, you don't lose the universal basic income if you get a job. Now, let's kind of stick on this kind of practicality element before we get into some of the kind of more principled arguments, which is, how do you see the state of play now in relation to UBI? So, you know, because it's such a big policy and so many people are talking about it, every day there seems to be kind of good news or bad news. The Finnish experiment is ended a bit early and that feels like a blow, but then we look at the findings and they're quite good or Jeremy Corbyn doesn't win the election, so John McDonald's enthusiasm for UBI is of no relevance. Uh, I think the Scottish National Party are quite keen on further experiments, so the result of Scottish elections significant as well. And also we see Joe Biden's refundable child tax credit, which has UBI elements to it. So I know it's difficult for you, Guy, because you're one of the, arguably the world's leading advocate for this policy. But what, where do you see the state of play now in relation to the, the movement towards the UBI? Well, I think we now stand at slightly more than 50% probability that, that one major country will introduce it at national level within the next 12 months. I could never have said that in the past. In the past year, I've been inundated with podcasts and, and virtual Zoom presentations all over the world. I must have done over 100 on basic income. And we did a basic income fair that was held in Seoul last week. I was a speaker, and we only set up our network in, in, in Korea about six years ago. And I just heard news this morning that that fair has already had over 600,000 visitors. The support for basic income in South Korea is enormous. The leading presidential candidate promises to introduce it. In the United States today, 44 cities have announced basic income pilots and experiments. If you'd said to me five years ago that that would be the case, you, I would have laughed. I would have said, no way. In Britain, 32 local councils, at latest count, have voted in favour of wanting to do pilots in their regions. I've been on BBCs in various places, local radio, local TV channels, where they voted in favour. As you mentioned, the Scottish National Party is, is in favour. The Lib Dems now are in favour. The 
that the Greens have been in favour. I've been asked to speak at their congresses several times. And within the Labour Party, there's this split, as you, as you know. But I think, you know, people like Johnny Reynolds and Ed Miliband are supportive and have been very friendly, Clive Lewis and so on. So we do have the nucleus of enthusiasm. But Conservatives will fight it to the teeth. They like privilege. They like themselves having basic security from birth. And they've always had basic income. But they wouldn't want other people to have it. So we're at a stage where I think it's going to amount to, can we put pressure on the state to allow experimentation, allow us to move in that direction? And as you've mentioned, you know, Biden's moves are actually creating the conditions for it in the United States and in Canada and, and elsewhere. We're seeing tremendous progress. So my sense, Guy, here is that you're not a purist in the sense that your view of how UBI comes about is that through pilots, which may not be perfect, and they can't be perfect because they're all, for example, localized, none of them have been across the whole of a, a whole of a country. Or if you take Biden's refundable child tax credit, that's a kind of UBI applied to children and families, not to every citizen. But then in a sense, once the principles of universality, the principles of non-conditionality are applied, that will make the idea less threatening for people. People will come to see it, they'll come to accept it, and then it can be spread more broadly. And I think that's your view rather than a kind of more purist view, which is the danger of anything which is not a pure UBI is that it discredits the idea because it's not it's not the full version. And if you don't have the full version, you won't get the full effects. Where do you kind of stand on that guy? I do agree with you. For me, I've always argued that the most important thing as we've gone through, and I've been working on it, we built our network 30 years ago, and we're about to have our 20th International Congress. I've always argued the important thing is to be on the road to a basic income system rather than the going against it is exactly what's been happening with the development of means testing and the shift to behavior testing and conditionalities and the universal credit is the end game of all that because you can see how pernicious and how high the exclusion errors and how much coercion has to be introduced, how many poverty traps are de deepened and so on. It's That's the end of the road. You can't get worse. It's workfare in all but name. So I think the important thing is to start moving in the opposite direction. And I believe also, Matthew, that people out there are ready for it. They understand it, particularly the young, educated part of the precariat. And I was very encouraged by a YouGov opinion poll at the end of last year in December that in six EU countries, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Poland and Portugal, over two-thirds of the public are now in favour of, of moving towards a basic income. I think that it should be seen as an evolutionary road where we say these values that I mentioned earlier are where we should build a good society. And that, I think, leads to the, the subject of the book that's just published because I think we need to use it as part of a new progressive policy. It's not a panacea. Of course it's not. It's got to be introduced as 
part of a new income distribution system that is compatible with a proper market economy. We don't have a proper market economy. And that's one of the arguments of the book. But I think we're, we're at the point where we're not regarded as a utopian or ad or anymore. We're actually in the mainstream. It's a question of whether other policies are necessary to make it a success. That's a different level of debate. And I'm rather happy that we're having that. Yeah, I think it's a really important point, Guy. And, what, and the reason that I, with you, say that we should be happy with a kind of incremental approach rather than being purist is that I think, in a way, the catch-22 with a kind of the notion of a, of a kind of revolutionary moment when suddenly UBI is adopted is that UBI, the evidence suggests that it helps to create the values that sustain it. But the catch-22 is until you've created it, you're still dealing with a set of values, for example, kind of judgmentalism about those people who are unable to get work, which undermine it. So we have to kind of soften it up. And, you know, I remember in the 90s that an idea like UBI would have been anathema because there was a very strong sense there that the welfare system had lost legitimacy and that therefore notions of conditionality a hand up, not a hand out, those kinds of ideas, were considered to be very important in the face of the public's loss of faith in the welfare system. So, you know, we're going on a long journey here from that kind of low point of feeling that one needed to make the welfare system kind of very punitive in order to re-legitimize it to a very different perspective, which is yours, Guy, which is to see the welfare system as something which is fundamentally focused on people's rights and on maximizing uh, security. But I also agree with you that I think that, you know, attitudes have shifted significantly. And the number of people, for example, in Britain who are now experiencing universal credit will, I think, increase the numbers who understand some of the problems of the system that we've got. Let's go just briefly, and I don't think we have to go in great depth because you've, you've covered a bit of this already, but let's just go through a couple of the kind of arguments that are most often raised as objections to UBI. So the first is, it's wasteful. You know, we are in a situation, uh, we had a situation of austerity, we will no doubt see a squeeze, continued squeeze on, on public spending in the face of the size of the deficit we've now got. Without getting to the economics of all of that, the public's view will be, well, you need to spend money as efficiently as you can. And the idea of giving money, even if it's only £70 a week or £80 a week, to millionaires as part of a universal UBI is easy to portray as kind of crazy in a situation where you don't want to be wasting public money. Well, I think that one can be dealt with easily, and I have done it in the books. It's actually administratively much easier to give everybody a basic income as a right, and then, if you wish, tax back by marginally increasing the tax rate on those with higher incomes. That's much easier than trying to identify the poor. And if you try to identify the poor, you have to have tests of poverty, you have to have consideration of variations and fluctuations in incomes, all of that stuff that goes on. And then you have to ask the question, well, suppose this person is poor because they're lazy or irresponsible. Then you have to do introduce behavior tests and so on. And then you have to have punishments if people are shown to be lazy, etc. And you have to have all these tests, which are highly expensive. And we've known for 50 years, ever since Richard Titmus was writing about it, 
that benefits that are only for the poor are invariably poor benefits. Their value tends to fall because there's no sense of solidaristic support for them. The poverty traps become enormous. Even with universal credit, the DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions, admits that somebody going from benefits, if they manage to get them, into a low-wage job effectively would pay a marginal tax rate of 80%. Now, that's a huge disincentive, hugely expensive. And it doesn't create the sort of security that I was talking about earlier. Security comes from knowing you're going to get support. Most people in that milieu of the precariat and dependent on benefits, they genuinely don't know whether they're going to continue to get them, whether they're going to get them, whether they're going to be changed, etc. They've lost rights. And I think that this sense of injustice goes very well with this objection to, it, it's dealing with that objection. But I think the pandemic has brought home an even more important point, Matthew, which is that we need to reconceptualize what we mean by work. The work that is more valuable and now regarded as essential work is care work. We know that that's done by women. We know that that has been left out of the welfare state. People who do work that is not labor have been excluded from mainstream benefits. And that's been a fault of the Labour Party and the trade unions as much as any other group in society. And we need to reconceptualize what work, and particularly in the in context of our ecological crisis, where volunteering and ecological work and community work and what I call commoning are the sort of work that we want to encourage. Why should they not be given social protection like any job in an office? So I think we are at a fundamental stage of reconceptualizing what constitutes a good society, what constitutes work, and therefore we need to give what I call ex-ante protection rather than ex-post compensation if you lose a job or something like that. So Guy, I mean, we've, we've covered, I think, quite a lot of the predictable critiques. We've, I think, dealt with the issue of moral hazard by demonstrating that in pilots there's no evidence that people kind of are less likely to work. We've dealt with the idea that somehow UBI is a, a, a an anti-work policy. But there's a different critique, which comes from a very different direction. And that takes us from this book, Battling Eight Giants, that was published last year, to, to one which I think is being republished almost as we speak, which is your book, Corruption of Capitalism, Why Rentiers Thrive and Work Does Not Pay. So this critique would be, in the end, UBI won't make that much difference because the fundamental basis of inequality in the modern world is assets, is wealth. And that tinkering around with the income distribution, so just making it the case that everybody is entitled to the minimum income floor, which exists in the benefit system unconditionally, does nothing to address this massive issue of disparities in wealth. And it is actually disparities in wealth that are also much more connected to disparities in power. How would you deal with that critique that in the end UBI might happen and it might just be a sop to enable people to cope with a system which is actually becoming structurally more and more desperately unequal? Yeah, I mean, I think the critique of rentier capitalism, which is a subject of the book, 
is basically saying that more and more of the income and wealth is going to those who possess property, particularly inherited property, intellectual property, and financial property. And this is both illegitimate in terms of a market economy. It can't be justified for the classic standard justification for a market economy. And it's increasingly unearned and it is untaxed, largely untaxed. What my proposals amount to is that, in fact, we should capture more of the rentier income while dismantling the institutions of rentier capitalism and build up what I've called a commons capital fund along the lines of the Norwegian fund, which they use North Sea oil to build that up, which means that every Norwegian is now a millionaire. We should have done the same. But we can build a commons capital fund by a series of levies on the rents that are taken by powerful interests. In Britain today, the value of wealth relative to income has increased dramatically. It used to be about 300% of GDP. It's now over 700%. And wealth inequality is much, much greater than income inequality. And yet, tax on wealth is minimal. We also have huge subsidies that go to the rentiers. I I document there, there are 1,190 forms of tax relief, which cost the exchequer hundreds of billions of lost revenue each year. And when anyone says we can't afford a basic income, you just have to say, well, those tax reliefs, if they were rolled back, even if half of them were used, we would have a very decent basic income from that. And it turns out that those tax reliefs are extremely regressive. They are unjustifiable in that they don't promote growth. And it's the same with the patent system the intellectual property right, which gives huge rent incomes to a minority who own the intellectual property. And we hardly tax it. On the contrary, George Osborne produced a a tax relief for people bringing in patents. So we need to tackle the structure of rentier capitalism, dismantling it in order to improve the distribution of income. But still, we need to build a fund from which you can pay out the basis income. That's the theme I've developed most in the Plunder of the Commons book, which preceded it. But for me, this is a matter of using the bads, taxing those bads, and putting them in a fund to distribute to everybody equally, because that that has to be the approach. Again, going back to an earlier point you made, the important point from here in May 2021, is to get onto that road, get onto the road where we're building that sort of structure, where we can provide everybody in the country with a modest assurance of basic income while having the instruments to make the economy more oriented to degrowth, to ecological survival, to care being provided to all of us, and to to a more convivial type of society. I believe that it's within our grasp to get firmly on that road, revive the commons, revive the commons. That is something that I've been urging Ed Miliband to take up. 
because I think that it could become part of a new progressive agenda. We need to revive the commons. And that has always been in our history, the struggle to defend the commons, to revive the commons. It goes back to 1217, it goes into the Peasants' Revolt, it goes into the the Chartists of the 19th century, the Levellers, and so on. It's part of British history to fight for the commons. And we have seen what's happened to the National Health Service. That's part of our commons. It's now been turned into a zone of rentier incomes, even before the corruption of the past year that's coming out. But it's, it's a matter of looking at a restructuring where we're saying, We don't need rentier capitalism. It must be dismantled. And we must use part of the proceeds to give everybody this basic income and to strengthen voice and do other things. But to me, it's it's a systemic issue rather than a one-off basic income as a panacea. It isn't. It's part of a rebuilding. It's a transformational moment. It's a Karl Polanyi moment that we're facing. So I think one thing that's really important about the book that you're publishing, the third edition of this, Corruption of Capitalism, is is actually in the title, The Corruption of Capitalism. Because I think that, you know, people listening to our conversation and sometimes even the very use of the word capitalism is taken by people to indicate that this is a conversation simply amongst left-wing anti-capitalists. But I think what is happening at the moment is that there's a recognition of the way in which capitalism has changed and the relationship between different phenomena, the concentration of incredible wealth in the hands of individuals and certain companies, the financialization of the economy, not just in terms of the importance of finance as a source of wealth and as an element of the economy, but also the financialization of other companies through private equity, where more and more parts of the economy are owned not by the people who actually produce the goods, or even the people who manage the people who produce the goods, but by people who simply see the organization as an asset. But also that this this system relates also to changes in the class structure, whereby owning your own home makes an enormous difference to your experience. And, you know, we are in a situation where you can be a public sector professional living in London, but if you're living in rented accommodation, your economic situation is difficult, even precarious. You can be doing a manual job but if you live in a different part of the country and you own your own home you will probably feel significantly more secure so the relationship between these kind of different phenomena is something that many writers you're writing about it brett christopher's is writing about it christine berry is writing interesting stuff about it we we need to understand the nature of this modern capitalist system which is so much based on assets and financialization in order then to think about what it is we do about it. So I recommend your book, Corruption of Capitalism, as well as Battling Eight Giants, which is the book about UBI that we spent most of our time talking about. Guy, we'll get you on again sometime because there's so much else to discuss. But thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. 
Visit thersa.org approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.